If you like scary stories, you've come to the right place. Welcome to the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories Podcast. <laughs> Sit back and relax. Keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times and enjoy the ride. The Forbidden Cave I write romance novels for a living. The settings may be different, but the stories are all the same. Mysterious stranger arrives on the scene. The tough, scorned, age-compatible woman who has sworn off men is intrigued. The villain of the story drives a wedge between them, but said wedge actually brings the couple closer together, and ultimately they team up to defeat the story's villain and find themselves in each other's arms. And they live happily ever after. I've used every conceivable setting for this formula. Medieval, modern western, historic western, futuristic dystopia, futuristic utopia, science fiction, otherworldly, arctic exposition, the desert, the jungle, the mountains, the ocean, on a cruise, on a battleship, on a submarine, on an airplane, a spaceship, in a science lab, a university, and on and on. Name a terrain, I've used it. Name the location, I've used it. Name the vessel, I've used it. I had done it all, and judging by my sales figures, my readers had grown tired of the formula. It was time for something new. I had to create an extremely new formula that I could sink my hooks into and ride out for the next decade or so. The problem was... I couldn't think of anything new. I had been writing the same old thing for so long that my mind had become narrow and unimaginative. So I stopped writing altogether. I became depressed and wallowed around the house in a dejected state. For weeks I never even removed my bathrobe. It was pathetic and clearly grating on my wife Linda's nerves. So she suggested, well, demanded that we would take a nice long vacation in hopes that would give me some kind of inspiration to start writing again. Linda picked the location and when we arrived, I was elated that I wasn't involved in the process because she chose perfection. It was a private island resort, and that's not an exaggeration. The entire island was the resort. It was amazing. The location was an area that had perfect temperatures, thus air conditioning and heating units were not necessary. You would think we'd be staying in some elaborate luxury hotel, but nothing could be farther from the truth. All of the rooms within the resort were carved into the side of a mountain. The inside of the mountain room is exceptionally quiet, as not much in the way of sound is able to penetrate the dense walls. An enormous balcony extends past the mammoth opening on the face of the mountain, which has a breathtaking view of the transparent ocean below. A babbling mineral water brook cascades down the side of the mountain next to our balcony, providing a calming effect. 
Our meals consisted mainly of seafood that was alive earlier in the day, the tropical drinks were soothing, and the desserts were to die for. This was paradise, and my wife's intentions were gaining traction. I could feel my mind percolating. My true brainstorm came when we took a tour around the island and passed by the jagged mouth of a cave that exuded a sinister aura. The tour guide explained that the cave was the location of human sacrifice rituals performed by the native inhabitants back in the day. He went on to say that it's not unusual to hear murmurs, moaning, and even screams emanating from within the cave. He spoke sternly and made it clear that the cave was off-limits and trespassers would be punished. I did not heed the tour guide's warning. I had to venture into that cave. The ambience within had to be chilling. A journey through the forbidden cave would be my mind's true awakening. I just had to do it. I didn't even tell Linda about my intentions. This was an expedition I had to experience on my own. I waited until Linda had been fast asleep before I crept out of our highland room and scurried down the winding mountain stairs to the forbidden cave below. The nocturnal chirping of insects was deafening until I reached the mouth of the forbidden cave, and then suddenly all went eerily silent. A wall of darkness swallowed anything that was beyond the cave's entrance so I withdrew my trusty cell phone, activated its flashlight, and began my trek into the forbidden cave. The walls of the cave were serrated and had the color of red clay, and while the mouth of the cave was gigantic, the interior of the cave quickly sloped into a smooth, slender corridor. The air within the cave was crisp, cool, and deathly still. My mind started playing tricks on me, making me wonder what would happen if the walls behind me crumbled inward, trapping me in the forbidden cave forever. But I didn't let that stop me from hiking forward. The tunnel continued to shrink, to the point where I had to stoop down to avoid bumping my head against the cave's roof, and the walls of the cave were growing increasingly thin. I could feel both sides of the sharp walls scraping against the outside of my shoulders. I had to turn sideways to avoid the discomfort, and within seconds the walls were closing in on me, pressing against my chest and back. If the walls transition continued in this manner, I'd have to turn back, in fear of getting lodged between the walls. It was then that I seemed to step through some kind of a doorway, and I found myself in a cavernous room that was swallowed by blackness. The room was so large that I could not see the walls or the ceiling. Hello? I cried out to see if my voice would echo back to me, but halted in my tracks when I heard a sharp whisper coming from the depths of the darkness. I see you. My heart momentarily stopped before I turned and bolted for the tunnel entrance, but I couldn't find it. I was slicing my hands as I felt around in the dark along the sharp walls. I frantically searched for the entrance that had brought me into this room, but my efforts were not bearing fruit. I was lost in a cavernous room, deep within the forbidden cave. 
Help me! Help me! Another sharp, whispering reply came forth. This time, it was much closer. There's no help for you here. I let out a scream as I could hear heavy footsteps galloping toward me, accompanied by an ear-piercing, malevolent hiss. I had nowhere to run. I had nowhere to hide. All I could do was scream, and that's exactly what I did. My screams came to a shrieking standstill when I heard a deafening, metallic pound, followed by monstrous overhead lights buzzing to life and illuminating the entire cavernous room. The room was colossal, even more so than I had imagined, and was sprinkled with a magnificent array of sparkling stalagmites and stalactites. The mystical sound of water droplets plummeting into a cavernous pond echoed throughout the room. I was shocked to see my tour guide standing in the middle of the cavern. He was flanked by several rows of the resort staff, all standing in formation. I told you this cave was off limits. The resort staff moved forward, encircling me. I warned you that the trespassers would be punished. The resort staff rushed me, slammed me against the jagged rocks, and kept me restrained as the tour guide pulled out a drill with the meanest, longest, most intimidating drill bit I had ever seen. You have two choices. He paused for the longest time before finally ending the suspense. Torture or death? If I were the hero in one of my novels, my answer would have been... Death. Your death. Then I would have proceeded to defeat the evil tour guide and his band of followers. However, I'm not the hero in one of my novels. I'm just a chubby, bald coward, so I didn't hesitate with my real answer. Torture. I pick torture. The tour guide smiled as he stepped forward and held the tip of the drill bit close to my eye. You're going to wish you chose death. With that, he squeezed the drill's trigger, and the spinning drill of death roared to life. He started laughing maniacally as he moved the drill closer to my eye, and then suddenly dropped all emotion, shut off the drill, and dropped it to his side. All was deathly silent for a moment before the quiet was shattered by the sound of hands clapping together, and then a familiar laugh filled the air. My wife. The resort employees turned me loose, and the tour guide stepped aside so that my wife could face me. She stared at me coldly, before smiling sincerely. If this doesn't give you inspiration, nothing will. My jaw dropped. You bitch. My response brought a boom of laughter from all the attendees within the Forbidden Cave. It took me a couple days to forgive her, but her plan succeeded. My writer's block had been crushed to dust, and every book I have released since that fateful day in the Forbidden Cave has been a best-seller.
It's trying to kill me. When I got the call about a disturbance at the Hamlet Hotel, my heart skipped a beat. It wasn't known as the most haunted hotel in Nashville for nothing. The Hamlet Hotel is a luxurious, full-service hotel in the heart of Music City. It was built in the 1920s in an Italian Renaissance style and is home to over 400 rooms, a presidential suite, multiple restaurants, and two sweeping ballrooms. It's a staple of Nashville's historic skyline. Our precinct gets called out to the hotel at least twice a week. I always hope those calls come in when I'm not on the clock. The head of security of the hotel used to be on the force with me. He's told me some tales, like the maids always complaining that after making up the beds, they'll leave the room for a minute and return to find the beds messed up again. Or the bartender telling him that every single night, something unforeseen slaps a glass off the bar, sending it shattering to the floor. Guests are constantly complaining about hearing windows open and doors slamming. People call him nightly frightened because they hear someone in their room whispering. But every time they check it out, there's nobody there. And I personally have experienced some scary situations. I was called in for a suicide. A young woman had shot herself in the head on the balcony of one of the rooms. I was the first officer on the scene. As I looked over the body, I heard giggling coming from within the hotel room and could hear a voice whisper, I made her do it. Then I heard water running. I rushed to the bathroom and found the water faucets had been turned on. I was alone in the room. No one else could have done it. I would have seen them. Another time, a 12-year-old boy was found murdered. Someone had pounded his head against the hotel room wall until he died. Guests in the neighboring room said they could hear the boy screaming for help. They tried unsuccessfully to get into the room. Again, I was the first officer on the scene. When security unlocked the door, I tried to push it open, but someone slammed it back in my face, leading me to believe the murderer was still in the room. We opened the door again and experienced the resistance once more. It felt like someone was trying to push the door closed to keep us out. When we finally shoved it open, the only thing we found was the dead body of the boy. No one else was in there. To this day, I've never been able to explain what the issue with that door was. One time, the head of security called me up, insisting that he went into one of the hotel rooms and found bloody handprints all over the walls. When I got there and we entered the room, there were no handprints. The room looked normal, but he still persisted that there had been bloody handprints on the walls. I was asking him if he could have been mistaken about the room number when I felt the temperature drop. Within a few seconds, it felt as if we were in a meat locker. Suddenly, I felt someone tug on the back of my hair. I turned around and there was nobody there. I hate going to the Hamlet Hotel, but there's more to it than just hatred. The fact is, I'm scared of it. As I sped down the streets toward the hotel, my heart began to race. 
I knew something unexplainable was waiting for me. I could feel it in my bones. It was 2.30 a.m. when I entered the lobby. I expected to be met by hotel security, but was surprised when it was a front desk clerk who rushed up to me. She was hysterical and frightened. She informed me that there was a woman on the fourth floor in room 401 who was screaming out in terror. I asked her where hotel security was and she explained that two of them had already gone up there, but had not returned. I had to find out what was going on, so I rushed to the elevator and took it to the fourth floor. The elevator was sluggish and vibrated as it moved and the lights began to flicker. In between the third and fourth floor, the elevator started to shake violently and the lights shut off. I could hear the roar of the elevator's motors whimper to silence, followed by an abrupt halt. I had to be close to the room because I could hear the woman screaming. I couldn't make out what she was saying, but she was screaming for her life. I managed to slide my fingers between the elevator doors and pry them apart a few inches. I was able to wedge my baton inside the doors just enough to pry them open. I was stuck between floors, so all I saw was a dirty concrete wall directly in front of me, but then I noticed that I could see an approximate three-foot opening at the top of the elevator that led to the fourth floor. I jumped up to the opening and struggled to crawl through. The top half of my body was on the fourth floor, while the bottom half of my body was still dangling within the elevator. That's when I heard the shriek of the elevator cables giving way, and could feel the elevator begin to move. I managed to heave myself up onto the third floor mere seconds before the plunging elevator cut me in half. I immediately pushed that horrific experience to the back of my mind and rushed to the door of the screaming woman. Beyond the door I could hear pounding and crashing noises. I could also finally make out the words the terrified woman was screaming over and over. It's trying to kill me! I took a strong stance and kicked the door wide open. The first thing I saw were the bodies of the two security guards. Their faces had been beaten into sickening bloody pulps. Beyond them I saw the unbelievable sight that I'll never forget. A petite Japanese woman in her early 40s was being thrown around the room by nothing. There was nobody else there except for her, yet she was being tossed about like a rag doll. She was being slammed into the walls and against the furnitures. Her eyes were wide and fright-filled, and she kept screaming over and over, It's trying to kill me! It's trying to kill me! I rushed to the woman's aid and was aggressively shoved to the ground by an unseen force. I jumped back up to my feet, grasped the small woman by the ankles, and began to pull her. I could see her arms extend outward and found myself in a human tug-of-war with an invisible, malevolent entity. Within a few seconds, the resistance from the other end of the woman gave way, and she fell to the floor. I implored her to run as I felt unusually long, skeletal fingers wrap around my entire head and face. The pressure was overwhelming, and as my face began to be slammed against the wall, I realized I was about to experience the same fate as the two security guards. That's when I felt a tiny Japanese woman tugging at my arms. 
She didn't have to come back and help me, but she did, and suddenly I felt the ghostly grasp release me. Neither of us wasted our few seconds of opportunity. The small woman and I raced out of room 401. As we dashed down the fourth floor's rose-colored corridor, we could hear the door to room 401 slam shut. If you're enjoying the podcast and you want to support the show, buy some of my books. I have a bunch of them, and most of them are free with Kindle Unlimited. Don't have Kindle Unlimited? No problem. They're all priced pretty cheap. Go to maniacontheloose.com slash books. Most of my books are now available as audiobooks. Go to maniacontheloose.com slash audiobooks. Graveyard Shift Back in the early 1980s, when I was in high school, I worked a summer job at a 24-hour donut shop. I worked the graveyard shift. The manager said he didn't normally let girls work those hours alone, but he was in a bind and didn't have anyone else to turn to. I was happy to work the graveyard shift. I'm a night owl and was up late most nights anyway. I was also a bookworm, and between 1 a.m. and 5 a.m., the shop was dead, so it allowed me to sit around and read most of the night. I was basically being paid to stay up late and read. Easy money, if you ask me. It was a weekday night, about 2.30 a.m., when I looked up from my book and noticed a large car pull up into the empty parking lot outside the shop. I recognized it as a late 1970s Buick Electra. It was cream in color and was accented with some serious rust. Normally, a customer would pull up, park, come in, and get some donuts and coffee, but that wasn't the case with this car. They turned off their lights and just sat there for at least 15 minutes before they turned their lights back on and drove away. I wasn't sure what they were doing, but I didn't think much about it. I figured they had their reasons for stopping there like they did, and I stuck my nose back into my book. It was an hour later when I instinctively looked up from my book upon hearing another car pull up into the lot. To my surprise, it was the same rusty car as before. Again, they had pulled into the lot, turned off their lights, and just sat there for the longest time before driving off again. What were they doing? I was afraid they might have been watching me. My manager warned me to keep an eye out for suspicious characters. He said most robberies took place during the graveyard shift, and that if I noticed any questionable characters, not to hesitate to call the police. I was going to take his advice, but as I reached over to pick up the phone, the lights of the rusty Buick lit up and the car slowly drove away. I didn't want to come across as the little boy who cried wolf to the police, so since the vehicle had left, I opted to let things be and went back to reading my book. A short while later, the phone rang. I answered cheerfully, but there was nobody on the other end. 
The phone was silent for a few seconds, and then I heard a loud click, followed by a dial tone. It couldn't have been more than 15 minutes after that when I heard a car pull up again. And once again, it was that same rusty tank of a car. But this time, when they turned off their lights, the car door opened and a shadowy figure emerged. It was obviously a male. He was tall and bulky. He was wearing dark pants and a black hooded sweatshirt with the hood pulled up over his head. He moved swiftly from the vehicle toward the entrance of the store. It was obvious to me that this guy was either going to rob me or just buy some donuts. To my surprise, the man did neither. He stopped outside the glass door. He just stood there, staring at me. The lights outside the store were positioned in a way that silhouetted the man and kept me from seeing his face well. After approximately 30 seconds of him standing stoically outside, staring at me, I picked up the phone to dial the police. The moment I put the phone to my ear, the man turned, walked methodically back to his car, and drove away. I still called the police and told them what happened. A police officer arrived about 10 minutes later. He was very nice. I provided him with the details of the strange experience, and he agreed that the behavior was unusual. He said he'd do some extra rounds and keep an eye out for any vehicles in the area that fit the car's description. He then ordered half a dozen donuts, a large coffee, and departed. Neither the rusty vehicle nor the shadowy driver showed up again that night. Once the clock struck 6 o'clock a.m., the morning rush began. I forgot all about that rust bucket and the ominous man. When the day shift arrived at 9 o'clock a.m., I got into my little pinto and headed for home. I lived in a small, quiet suburban neighborhood with the houses set wide apart. I had just turned onto my block when I glanced into my rearview mirror and noticed a familiar car behind me. It was the rusty Buick. There was no mistaking it, it was the same car. It kept a fair distance behind me as though attempting not to be noticed, but I was now aware of its presence. I was concerned. I lived in a neighborhood of working people with normal jobs. The neighborhood was always eerily quiet after 9 o'clock a.m. when everybody was at work. My house was just up ahead on the right, but I didn't want to pull into the driveway and let the man know where I lived. On top of that, I was worried that if I pulled into the driveway, he may block me in and there'd be nobody around to help me. So I kept driving past my house and turned off of my street. The rusty car continued to follow. I turned down another road and the car still followed me. I turned again. It was still following. Every turn I took, the car stayed behind me. Eventually, I turned out of the subdivision and back onto a main road. He continued to follow. What did he want? Did he want to kidnap me? Rape me? Murder me? All of the above? The driver obviously had something sinister in mind. I picked up my speed and he did the same. I made a few quick sharp turns in an attempt to lose him, but he stuck to me like glue and sped up. He knew I was on to him at this point and no longer kept a safe distance. He was now riding my bumper. If I were to jam on the brakes, he would have rammed into me. 
I fastened my seatbelt tight and sped up, far exceeding the speed limit. My little junky car was no match for the mighty engine his monster vehicle housed. Nonetheless, I kept the pedal to the metal and whizzed down street after street until I finally reached my destination. I slammed on the brakes and came to a skidding halt just outside of the police station. As expected, the rusty car behind me slammed into my rear bumper. A flurry of police officers swarmed out of the police station to see what the commotion was. At the same time, I jumped out of my car and started pointing at the rusty beast of a car behind me. He's following me! He's chasing me! Help! As I screamed out, the driver jumped out of the massive car and bolted across the street behind the building. Multiple police gave chase on foot while others jumped into their vehicles and peeled out after him. I have no idea how he did it, but somehow, the mysterious follower eluded the police and got away. They never found him. It turns out, the license plates on his car were stolen from another vehicle, and there was no information inside the car indicating whom it belonged to. The only thing they found when they searched his rusty Buick was a rope, handcuffs, chloroform, a vibrator, and a surgical knife set. My latest book has been released. Chunks of Terror, Volume 1. Over 20 scary stories are waiting for you. Go to Amazon and search for Chunks of Terror or go to maniacontheloose.com slash books. The Missing Corpse Morgue Technician I'm a morgue technician. Guess where I spend most of my time? You guessed it. A rather small morgue hidden in the basement of the local hospital. The morgue is cold both in temperature and in appearance. It houses two medical tables to work on the bodies, pale green walls, and a cold gray concrete floor. The smell isn't anything to write home about either. Kind of a combination of raw meat and bleach. But I was used to it. I was in the process of sanitizing the dead body when the medical examiner, Dr. Dixon, called. He instructed me not to touch the body. He stated that he was on his way over to take care of everything himself. It was odd, but I didn't care. It was less work for me. I began tidying up my workspace when Dr. Webster entered the room. Dr. Webster liked to come to the morgue and flirt with me. He was married and 20 years my senior, but the flirtation was harmless, so I didn't mind. Usually, Dr. Webster was bright and cheery. He'd often open the conversation with a corny joke before complimenting my smile, or my eyes, or my hair, or something. But on this day, he quickly said, Hi, Tina, and then hurried through the morgue to the adjoining bathroom washing area. I could hear the water running in the room in addition to his hacking and persistent cough. When he finally emerged from the room, he looked exhausted. 
He had dark circles under his eyes and his skin was grayish. His bloodshot eyes were tired and I could hear significant wheezing with every breath he took. Still, he attempted to flirt. Well, don't you look lovely today? I wish I could say the same for you. You look horrible. Oh, well, that's not nice. He staggered forward and began having a coughing attack. He steadied himself on the medical table that currently housed the dead body and began coughing profusely. Streams of greenish-red phlegm flew from Dr. Webster's mouth and splattered all over the corpse's face. When he finally got control of his hacking, he looked up at me apologetically. Uh, sorry about that. I shrugged. Eh, you're not going to make that guy any sicker. Dr. Webster managed to flash a grin. He loved my morbid sense of humor. That's when I noticed the bloody gauze he had wrapped around his hand. What happened to you? He waved me off. Clearly, he wasn't up for discussion. I, I, I need to get home. He stumbled toward the morgue door, but had to stop, lean up against the wall and catch his breath before proceeding. You idiot. You are in a hospital. All of your colleagues are doctors. Now go upstairs and have one of them check you out, you stubborn ass. He nodded. Okay, I, I will. I helped Dr. Webster down the corridor and into the elevator. The moment the elevator door shut behind him, I heard the stomping footsteps of somebody running. I turned my head to see a frazzled security guard racing toward me. He stopped when he reached me, took a few seconds to catch his breath, and then spit out an alarming question. Have you seen anyone suspicious come through here? I shook my head. No, nobody comes down here. It's, it's the basement. What's going on? All hell is breaking loose in the hospital. With that, the security guard started rushing into every room in the corridor, searching for someone or something. I was frightened by his words and his tone. Something was wrong. I wasn't sure what to do, so I hurried back to the morgue. I was thinking of locking myself in there until someone let me know things were okay. When I stepped back into the morgue, I got the shock of my life. The corpse I had been sanitizing was gone. I was bewildered. Where was the body? I never even had a chance to wrap my head around that bizarre occurrence when the medical examiner, Dr. Dixon, barged into the room. He looked almost as stunned as I did. Where's the corpse? I told you not to touch it. I shrugged. I, I don't know. I stepped out of the room for a few minutes, and when I came back, it was gone. My response wasn't acceptable to him. He started ranting and raving before he stormed out of the room in a panic. I was going to follow him, but then I heard a sound from the bathroom slash washing area. It sounded like something fell. I hurried to the room and flipped on the light. I couldn't believe what I was looking at. The Missing Corpse Security Guard I was alone in the security office, leaning back in my chair and listening to some tunes when the music was interrupted by an emergency broadcast. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to hear what the emergency was, 
because just at that moment, the security phone rang. I quickly answered it and was told to hurry to the third floor of the hospital. Apparently some maniac was attacking people, that's all they told me, so I bolted up to the third floor. When I got there, I only saw the aftermath. It was mass confusion. There was a mingling of patients, doctors, nurses, and others. Many seemed shocked. Some were crying. Others were tending to wounds. I recognized one of the people as Dr. Webster. He was a nice guy. He had a thing for flirting with much younger women. I hurried to him and asked him what happened. We were attacked. Attacked? By who? It was a little scrawny old man. I looked around at the chaos I was amongst. People of all shapes and sizes were wiping blood from various parts of their body. I found it odd that they couldn't have subdued an old man. I guess Dr. Webster could see my confused expression, so he elaborated. He was savage. He, he was a little old man, but he wasn't acting like it. He wasn't moving like it. He was like a deranged wild animal. I looked down and noticed Dr. Webster's hand was bleeding. I motioned to his wound. What happened? He bit me. I was surprised. He bit you? He was ferocious, I'm telling you. Whoever the old maniac was, he wasn't on the third floor anymore, so I rushed up the stairwell to the fourth floor. The crazy old man had been there too. It was the same hectic situation, medical staff tending to the wounded, people frazzled, unsure of what to do. My fellow security guards were searching all of the rooms. It was then that I got a call on my walkie-talkie that my supervisor wanted me to go down and check the basement. I was a little annoyed. The crazy guy was obviously around the area I was currently in. I wanted to be where the action was, not the dreary, boring basement but I did as I was ordered. I hustled down the stairwell to the basement and tore down the corridor toward the morgue. I stopped when I reached a morgue technician. I asked her if she noticed anyone suspicious down there, but as expected, she didn't. So I started rifling through the various rooms of the dull basement in hopes of finding the old man. The rooms were void of people or activity of any kind. I concluded that the maniacal old man was not down there, and I took it upon myself to walk up the stairwell. If he was hiding there, I would find him. I was just a couple of flights up the stairs when I heard one of the stairwell doors open, followed by someone rushing up the stairs toward me. Before I could even turn around and see who it was, they rammed into me and shoved me against the wall. I banged my head and blacked out. The Missing Corpse Medical Examiner My name is Dan Dixon. I'm a medical examiner with a gambling problem. I make good money, but nowhere near the amount to pay off my gambling debts that were inching close to a million dollars. My bookie is named Tony Vignola, and he was really starting to come down on me about my outstanding debts. It wouldn't be long before they started breaking bones, so I was desperate. I had to do something. So I killed Tony Vignola. I used my professional knowledge to use a slow-working poison that is untraceable unless it's specifically looked for. And with me being the medical examiner, I'd make sure nobody looked for it. 
It was an extreme action, but necessary to cancel my debts. I was confident I could pull this off with no hitches, but I wanted to be extra careful. I didn't want anyone handling the body other than myself, including the morgue technician, so I called and told them hands off. When I arrived at the hospital, it was total chaos. Something major was happening, but I didn't have time to ascertain exactly what it was. I needed to get Mr. Vignola's body taken care of. When I got to the basement, I noticed the security guard rushing in and out of various rooms, searching for something or someone. But again, that wasn't my concern. I, I had to make sure Mr. Vignola's body was managed correctly. When I entered the morgue, my heart sank. There was no body on either medical table. The only body in the room was that of the morgue tech, Tina. She was clearly perplexed. Where's the corpse? I told you not to touch it. She shrugged. I don't know. I stepped out of the room for a few minutes, and when I came back, it was gone. Gone? That's all you can say is gone? Who took him? Again, she shrugged. Nobody. I mean, there hasn't been anybody else down here except for me. The corpse didn't just get up and walk away on its own. Obviously, somebody carted it out of here. What I want to know is who. I'm sorry, Dr. Dixon, but I don't know. I couldn't let anyone else handle Mr. Vignola's body. It was too risky. I took a few deep breaths in an attempt to calm myself, but it wasn't working. Still, I tried to get the morgue tech to retrace her steps. Who else was down here with you today? Nobody. I'm the only one scheduled today. I had no patience, so I started speaking to her like a child. Listen to me carefully. Did anyone else enter this room while you were here? She nodded. Dr. Webster, but he was really sick, so I walked him to the elevator. That was the only time I left this room. And the corpse was still in the room when you exited with Dr. Webster? Correct. Did you see or talk to anyone else at all after that? She started shaking her head and then paused. Well... Just the security guard. The security guard? The one I noticed suspiciously searching the rooms when I arrived. It had to be him. He had to have taken the body. I rushed out of the morgue and darted down the corridor in search of the security guard, but I saw him nowhere. I stopped and listened carefully, hoping to hear his footsteps. What I heard instead was a moan. A satisfied moan. It was coming from the stairwell. I flung the stairwell door open and flew up the stairs before coming to a grinding halt. Oh my god! It was a gaunt, bald, elderly man stooped over the dead body of the security guard, and the old man was letting out moans of pleasure as he devoured the security guard's entrails. When I instinctively cried out, the old man twisted his head in my direction. The eyes of the man were not human. They were yellow and enraged. His skin was ghastly and deathlike. He was gnashing his teeth and emitting short, defensive growls like a dog guarding a bone. I couldn't make out his teeth well. They were stained dark red. But I noticed shards of the security guard's flesh dangling from the gaps in his teeth. I was looking at a monster. 
I let out a scream when I saw the old man take an aggressive posture like a snake about to strike. He then charged down the stairs toward me. I dashed down the stairs and ran down the corridor toward the stairwell on the other side of the basement. As I reached it, I looked over my shoulder at the nauseating, scraggy old man racing toward me while shrieking out in rage. I threw the stairwell door open and then took two steps forward before I froze. Tony Vignola, the man I had murdered. He was ascending the stairwell. His naked, sagging body was a hideous pail of dishwater gray. When he heard the stairwell door open, his head jetted around and he fixed his evil yellow eyes upon me. He let out the scream of a banshee as he launched himself at me. I turned back to the corridor, but the skeletal old man was now just a few feet away, so I quickly ducked into the morgue and locked the door. The vicious old man started pounding away at the window of the door, smearing the glass with his blood-stained hands. He was joined by Mr. Vignola, and both of them glued their fierce eyes on me as I tried to figure out what to do. I was startled when I heard the voice. Hello? It was a female voice. It was Tina's voice. I hurried to the bathroom that connected to the morgue. The door was shut and locked from the inside, so I pounded on it. Tina, open the door! She did so. She looked drained as she lumbered out of the bathroom. Is he gone? Yes, he's, he's out there. I pointed, showing her the menacing monsters slapping away at the morgue door. I pulled a chair over and helped Tina sit down. What happened? I walked into the bathroom and standing there was the corpse. You said it didn't just get up and walk away on its own, but that's exactly what it did. That's when I noticed the blood on Tina's arm. What's that? He attacked me. I managed to shove him out of the bathroom and lock myself in, but he bit me. I looked at the wound. It had the appearance of being infected and was oozing a thick, clotting yellow, green, and red discharge. Um, it, it's gonna be okay. I lied to her and she knew it. Then she started coughing and wheezing. She couldn't stop. Within seconds, she went into massive spasms and began vomiting dark red that was riddled with sticky white strands that resembled a spider web. Seconds later, she was still lifeless. But that didn't last long. She leapt to her feet with the swiftness of a cat and locked her deranged yellow eyes on me. Instinctively, I ran for the morgue door, but realized that wasn't an option. The savage old man and Mr. Vignola were there just begging for me to open it. As Tina let out a scream of rage and charged me, I realized I had no escape. Fragments of Fright, the complete series, is now available. All five volumes of the international best-selling series, bundled together into one convenient, horrifying collection. Go to Amazon and search for Fragments of Fright, complete series, or go to maniacontheloose.com slash books. 
The Cat Burglar I'm a cat burglar. I'm known for my stealth and silence. Most houses or businesses that get a visit from me are never even aware that I was there. I'm that good. And much like a cat, I do my best work at night. I specialize in residences and my preference is to enter the home while the occupants are asleep. Once inside, I glide around with smooth swiftness. I never make a sound, and if someone wakes up while I'm still there, I simply blend into the shadows. The act of stealing is the easy part. Getting inside is normally the difficult aspect of my trade. Especially if there are alarm systems or watchdogs on the premises, but I never let any of that deter me. Where there's a will, there's a way. I'm a petite, slender female. I'm athletic, flexible, and nimble. I'm rather flat-chested, so if I ever make a mistake and show up on a camera, all they'll see is a person in a black cat suit and dark ski mask. Nine times out of ten, they'll assume I'm a man. I have clients who hire me to obtain specific, valuable items. They provide the who, what, and where. I acquire the item in question, then my client fences the item and splits the profits with me. It's nice not to have to do the extra legwork most cat burglars do. It allows me to concentrate fully on my craft. My latest job was about as easy as it gets nowadays. A woman in her 60s who lives alone in a large, three-story, luxurious, Casabella-style house. The house was isolated on the beachfront. The woman had no dogs. Shockingly, she didn't have a security system either. She only had a few stationary security cameras placed on various portions of the exterior of the house, but they would be simple to avoid. This was going to be one of the easiest jobs I'd ever had. The item I was to obtain was known as a graduated diamond eternity necklace. It held a retail value of approximately $70,000. My client would sell it for $60,000 and my cut would be $30,000. Not bad for a night's pay. I evaded all of the cameras and crept up to a side window on the first floor. Picking the lock took me approximately four and a half seconds. The window slid open quietly, no rubbing or creaking sounds that could potentially give me away. I slipped inside the house and softly, slowly, lurked up the extravagant, winding staircase that led to the second floor. I had it on good authority that the necklace was kept in the woman's nightstand next to her bed. It would require extreme stealth and silence, but that is my specialty. I couldn't even hear my own footsteps as I softly scampered down the long hallway to her bedroom. The hallway was high-ceilinged, lined with candles, and decorated with painted portraits of stern men. It gave me the feeling of a 1950s horror movie. The only thing missing were the cobwebs. I reached the room and was happy to see the door was already ajar, so I dropped to my hands and knees and scurried across the floor. 
The room was gigantic and blanketed in darkness. It was covered with plush carpeting that my knees appreciated, and in no time I finally reached the nightstand. In most similar situations, I could hear the occupant snoring or at least breathing heavily, but this woman slept silently. This was unfortunate. The heavier the breath of a sleeping occupant, the easier it was to determine if their sleep pattern was interrupted. Still, I wasn't deterred. I raised myself up just past the edge of the bed, ever so delicately slid the nightstand drawer open, and removed the necklace. As I skillfully closed the nightstand drawer, I peered over at the sleeping woman. A beam of moonlight shattered the darkness and illuminated her face. Her skin was much more wrinkled than I would expect for a woman her age. Her hair was white, and most importantly, her eyes were shut tight. I was about to begin my exit from the house when I noticed something unusual about the woman. There was something dark around her throat. At first I thought it was part of the fabric of her nightgown, but when that darkness glistened in the moonlight, I recognized it for what it was. Blood. Fresh blood oozing from the slit in her throat. Someone had just murdered this woman. The wound couldn't have been more than three minutes old. That's the moment I heard the heavy stream of urination hitting porcelain from a nearby room. I dropped down to the floor and gazed around the bottom corners of the walls until I saw the light shining from under a door at the far side of the enormous bedroom. The murderer must have killed her and then stepped to the bathroom to take a leak. I was about to launch myself out of the room when the bathroom door swung open with ferocity. There was nothing I could do other than roll under the bed. I watched as large, heavy boots thudded toward the bed and then abruptly stopped. I could hear the heavy breath of the killer as he stood staring at his handiwork. He was still and silent for over five minutes before he spoke in a sharp, whimpering tone. You can't criticize me anymore, mother. Ah, this was her son, and he had some serious mommy issues. All I could do was stay quiet until he left. Another ten minutes of silence passed while he stood gawking at his mother, and then I startled when I heard a metallic clang and witnessed a bloody knife fall to the floor next to his feet. He dropped the murder weapon, which meant he was going to have to bend down to pick it up. This was not an ideal situation. I could hear the killer's knees crack as he bent all the way down to pick up the knife. But he didn't just grab it and stand back up. He stared at the blade and began running his fingers over the blood. I could see his puffy face well. He had wild, thick blonde hair, and his blue eyes were shining bright in the moonlight. I held my breath when he turned his head and stared directly at me. He held his gaze for the longest time. This was not good. Physical confrontation was not my forte. This man could grab me and snap my neck like a twig. I kept my breath sucked into my swollen lungs, and I didn't move a muscle, not a twitch. 
I played the role of a dead, rotting log. When his eyes shifted around and he finally stood up, I realized he couldn't see me. My black attire perfectly camouflaged me with the darkness under the bed. Even while staring directly at me, he didn't realize there was a person under there staring back at him. It was over an hour later when he finally exited the bedroom. I could hear his footsteps thudding through the macabre hallway and down the winding staircase. It wasn't until I heard the front door open and close that I let out an audible breath of relief. It turned out to be a much more nerve-wracking night than I was expecting, but the ultimate goal was achieved. I got the necklace. There's someone in my closet. Betty. I belong to a sorority, and the small sorority chapter house I lived in was home to 21 of us at full strength. However, it was the final week of college before Christmas break, and many of the girls had already left to go back home. I'm an orphan. I don't have a home to go back to, so I stay in the sorority house during Christmas break. This year, I was going to be the only one who wasn't leaving for break. I'd be all alone in the sorority house. The day before Christmas break began, there were only three of us still there. Myself, Veronica, and Nancy. Nancy packed up that morning and left before noon leaving only Veronica still there with me. Veronica was a sweet, fun girl. She was very thoughtful and had a playful streak. She was short, always had her dark hair tied in pigtails, and sported big, round spectacles. Veronica was running errands that day, so I was getting an early preview of what the next month was going to be like. Normally, the house was full of people. It was springing with life and activity, there was constant chatter of voices, radios, or TVs. There was never a dull moment, and most important of all, it always felt safe. I didn't feel safe now. I never realized how big the house felt until it was empty. Without the continuous buzz of the other inhabitants, an unnerving silence canopied the entire place. It was going to be spooky living there all alone for nearly an entire month. I walked into the main living room area and peered out of the front window. It had snowed the night before, and the ground was blanketed in white. Tire tracks made the roads impure, but the yards of the surrounding houses were still covered with virgin snow. It was so quiet and peaceful outside. Normally, an array of bodies would be roving up and down the sidewalks, but not today. Not a soul in sight. Except for... a strange man. He was standing across the street next to a massive walnut tree, and he was staring directly at the sorority house. It was odd. The house was old and quite beautiful, but it was rather ordinary compared to some of the monolithic mansions in the neighborhood. It wasn't the kind of structure that would make people stop and gawk like this man was. 
The man was wearing a black puffy winter jacket and a knitted black winter cap. He appeared to be the age of an older college student, but I just couldn't figure out what would make him stop and eyeball the house like he was. Perhaps he was a thief that thought the house was empty now and it would be safe for him to stand out in the open and stare at it while he planned how to burglarize the place. Maybe he was a rapist and knew I was going to be staying there all alone. He could be out there deciding which window to break into. Or he could be a murderer, just waiting to make sure everyone else was gone before he snuck into the house and hacked me into pieces with an axe. I yanked the window curtains closed, ran up to my bedroom and locked the door. I crawled over to the bedroom window and slowly peeked my head up just enough to spy out the window. The man was still there and he appeared to be looking directly up at me. I ducked back down and began shuffling through the options in my mind. I could call the police and let them know about the scary man out front. That's probably what I would do if he was there much longer. I actually grabbed my phone off the nightstand and dialed 911 as I looked out the window again. Fortunately, I never hit the send button because the frightening man was now gone. But I feared that he'd be back later that night and I had to make sure I was properly prepared to defend myself. I had a handgun, but wasn't allowed to keep it in the sorority house, so I kept it in a safety deposit box at a nearby bank. Since I was going to be all alone, nobody would know if I had my gun in the house, so I went to the bank and retrieved it. By the time I got back to the house, it had gotten dark. As I walked down the walkway to the house, I kept looking over my shoulder to make sure nobody was sneaking up on me. And boy, was I glad that I was staying alert because I spotted him. It was the man in black that was staring at the house earlier in the day. He was walking up the sidewalk. I sprinted down the walkway to the house. I fumbled around and dropped my keys to the ground. As I bent down to pick them up, I turned my head and noticed that the man had stopped at the end of the walkway and was watching me. I quickly picked up my keys, unlocked the door, ran inside, and slammed the door shut behind me. I took a quick glance out the front door's side window and could see the man marching methodically down the walkway toward the door. I ran to the living room and ducked down under the window as I heard a soft knock on the front door. When I cautiously peered out the window, I could see that the man was gazing about. He then pulled out a cell phone and appeared to be texting someone. Who was he texting? He must have had a partner in crime, or multiple partners. He wasn't in on this reprehensible plan by himself. I planned on hiding in the attic. Nobody ever went up there except on cleaning days. It was dark and there was a lot of junk for me to hide behind. As I approached the attic stairs, I realized that I had left my cell phone on my nightstand. I needed to get that. While I was in the attic hiding, I'd call the police. I hurried into my bedroom, and as I reached for my phone, I heard the distinct rattle of hangers jiggling in my closet. Someone was in there. It must have been the man outside's partner. He was already in the house. I raised my gun toward the closet door and put my finger on the trigger. As soon as the intruder flung the closet door open, I fired away. There's somebody in my closet. 
Veronica. I was going to be the last one to leave for Christmas break. Nancy left shortly before noon that day. I wasn't going to have to leave until later that night. I lived just two hours from school and preferred driving at night. I had a bunch of little errands and loose ends to tie up which didn't allow me to spend much time with Betty before I left. I didn't like that. Betty stayed in the house during Christmas break before, but there was always at least one other girl staying with her. She was never alone like she was going to be this year. She had a tendency to expect the worst, and I could tell she was concerned about being alone. I wanted to spend some time with her before I left just to help reassure her that she'd be safe. I finished up with my errands as quick as I could so I would have more time with Betty. As I walked home, I got a call from my mom. She informed me that her and my dad won some kind of Caribbean holiday cruise. It left early the next week and they wouldn't be back until after the first of the year. I was relieved. I never enjoyed spending the holidays with my parents. I was an only child and the get-togethers were mostly a bunch of relatives that I only saw once a year and barely knew. None of them had kids my age making me the forever child at these gatherings. My plan was to stay at the sorority house with Betty until after my parents got back home from their cruise. I knew Betty would be pleased, and I was looking forward to telling her. As I approached the sorority house, I noticed a strange man standing across the street staring at it. I figured him to be about 25 years old. He was dressed in a black winter jacket and a black hat. I didn't like the looks of this guy, and I was going to tell him about it. Hey, what are you looking at? He pointed to the house. There's somebody up in the attic. I looked up at the attic window and was aghast to see a figure of a person standing up there. I work at the bookstore. I always pass by here on the way to work, and the last couple of days I've noticed someone standing up there staring out of the attic window. I was terrified. Someone was in the house. Then I remembered Betty was home alone. Betty! I grabbed the dark-dressed man by the arm and forced him to come to the house with me. As we entered the house, I immediately started calling out for Betty, but there was no answer. Maybe we should call the cops. The stranger was right, but I was afraid that the person in the attic already had Betty and we didn't have time to wait for them. We have to save her! I rushed up the stairs with the dark-dressed man in tow. We raced up the attic stairs, burst through the door, and found ourselves eye to eye with a mannequin. It was a full-sized mannequin dressed up in a dark fur coat and baseball cap. It was positioned far enough away from the window to where one couldn't make out details, but could still see it, giving the appearance that someone was standing up there. I immediately called up Nancy, who was the last one to clean the attic, and she explained that since Betty was going to be in the house alone, she thought it might be a nice security measure to make it appear that someone else was in the house to any passerby. The man who was brave enough to accompany me to the attic to confront the intruder was named Reggie. He seemed like a nice guy. He even asked me if I'd have a cup of coffee with him that evening. I accepted. I spent the rest of the afternoon and early evening unpacking all of my things. Shortly after I finished, I heard the front door open, indicating that Betty was home. I started to head downstairs, but paused as I passed by Betty's room and noticed her cell phone lying on her nightstand. 
I'm a bit of a practical joker, so I got an idea that it might be funny if I hid in Betty's closet and called her phone. When she came in and answered it, I'd give her a good scare. She'd forgive me after I broke the news to her that she wouldn't be alone the entire Christmas break. After entering the closet and getting ready to call Betty's phone, I got a text message from Reggie saying he was downstairs. I was about to call the prank off and exit the closet when Betty entered the bedroom on her own. I kind of blew the prank when I accidentally bumped into some of the hangers and alerted Betty to my presence, but she didn't know that it was me, so I decided to follow through. I flung the door open and jumped out of the closet. If you like what you're hearing, please consider contributing. Any amount helps. Recurring monthly contributions are best of all. Just go to ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash support. That's ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash support. The Implant When I was seven years old, I remember staring out my bedroom window shortly after getting home from school at approximately 3 p.m. I saw a white, blazing dot in the sky that quickly grew larger as it zoomed toward me. The next thing I remember was my dad calling me down to dinner at 6 p.m. That was the first experience with the aliens that I can remember having, but there have been countless since then. They can happen at any time, but usually they occur at night after I've gone to bed. I'm always in a trance-like state when it happens. My belief is that I'm not supposed to remember any of this, but occasionally I partially wake from the induced slumber, and those are the bits I remember. The encounters usually involve a bright light. Sometimes it's outside the window or coming from under my bedroom door. Other times it's within the room shining from above me. Occasionally it's more consolidated, like a beam of light striking me in the head. Sometimes I hear the beings around me. They are communicating with each other, but it's pure gibberish to me. I always feel paralyzed. I can't move. I'm helpless and totally at their mercy, and often I feel as though I'm floating in the air. On more than one occasion, I can remember seeing my house from above as though I were floating in the sky. I'm not sure where they take me, but I usually wind up on a table that's so cold it feels like I'm lying on a block of ice. The bright lights above me sting my eyes and keep me from seeing my abductors well. But they are not human. They're small. In the four-foot range. I've seen their arms and hands well. Pale gray and slender. Fingers abnormally long. No nails. They experiment on me. 
I'm never sure what they're doing, but sometimes the pain is excruciating. I've experienced sharp stabbing pains behind my right ear. My head sometimes feels filled with pressure like I may feel if I were sinking into the depths of the ocean. It's a terrifying experience, and for the longest time, I couldn't talk to anyone about them. I'd be deemed insane by most, or considered nothing more than an attention seeker by others. This made for a lonely life. That is, until I found out that there were others like me. I meet up once a week with other people in my region who have been abducted. There are twelve of us in the group. There are hundreds of online groups that connect people with these similar experiences from around the world. The number of us worldwide could be well into the tens of thousands, maybe more. Members of our local group theorize that maybe we are the minority of abductees. Perhaps there are millions of people who have been abducted who never know about it. Maybe we are the few who have woken up and caught a glimpse of the horror, while the majority walk around every single day unaware of what has been happening to them. And then there are the implants. One of the members of our group brought up the fact that she had a strange bump in her ankle. She had it x-rayed, and it revealed what appeared to be a small metallic object. Other members found implants as well when they searched the areas of their body that they felt the most pain in when they had the experiences. I found my implant behind my right ear. I had my doctor remove it and had it examined. It was indeed a metallic object and the analysis revealed that the implant consisted of alloys with non-terrestrial isotopic ratios which suggested it was not of this world. Examiners also discovered that the object seemed to be emitting subtle electromagnetic frequencies. Within a month, another implant was back behind my ear. I don't know if it grew back or if my abductors put it there. All I know is that it's back. None of us had any idea what the purpose of the implants were. Oh, we all had our theories. Tracking devices is a popular idea, or perhaps they are monitoring us like humans do with other animals. Today, the true purpose of the implants was revealed. At 3.01 p.m., it was as though a switch was flipped and it became clear to all of us. The feeling is unusual. It's like my body does things on its own now without me telling it to do so. I feel like a passenger within my own body, but I'm privy to the plan. Those who theorize that we were a minority of abductees who managed to catch a glimpse of something they were never supposed to see were proven correct. There are over a billion of us. We received our marching orders and today is the day that the invasion begins. We will conquer the non-abductees on our planet, and once victory has been declared, we will extinguish ourselves. At that time, they will begin their inhabitation of the planet Earth. The alien invasion of Earth doesn't involve spaceships, death rays, and armies of alien creatures. 
the reality is much simpler and doesn't require any of our abductors to enter harm's way. Hey everyone, if you're enjoying the Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories podcast, we hope you'll support the show. The show is a lot of work and your support is greatly appreciated. There are several ways you can support the show. Just go to maniacontheloose.com slash support. That's maniacontheloose.com slash support. The Party Crasher My name is Ricky Dennison. I'm what most people would refer to as a high school nerd. I wear thick-rimmed glasses, and they're a little too big for my face. They fall off a lot and break. They're held together by masking tape, both at the center and one of the arms. I try to make my hair look cool like guys back in the 1950s. I grease it up and comb it so it's wavy. The problem is, within an hour, my waves fall flat and my hair is plastered to my head like a geek. I don't have a job yet, so my mom still buys my clothes. I always tell her that I'm taller than she realizes, but that never stops her from buying pants that are far too short for me and make me look like a dork. I wear shirts with pockets, not because I think they're fashionable, but because I'm really bad about losing pens. If I keep them all in my shirt pockets, I don't lose them. I know it just lends to my nerdish appearance, but I have to have my pens. Needless to say, I get bullied at school. (laughs) Most people refer to me as a nerd, dweeb, geek, freak, weirdo, or wonk. A lot of boys knock the books out of my hands. I often get pushed and shoved while walking through the hallways. I sit alone at the cafeteria and people occasionally pelt me with food. It was a rough life for me. That is, until Bo arrived. Bo was a big kid who moved in next door to me. He was one grade higher than me and he was a big time jock. He was instantly the star of the football team. Girls flocked around him. Guys all wanted to be his friend. He was the big man on campus. He wasn't mean to me either. He acknowledged me when he saw me. He'd say hi or nod to me and smile. He never picked on me, and if he saw anyone else doing so, he'd tell them to stop. Once he was walking down the hall with one of the other popular boys in the school, and that other boy saw me coming and started chanting, Nerd alert, nerd alert. Bo gave that guy a shove and said, Knock it off, that's my neighbor you're picking on, cool it. Ever since that day, nobody else picked on me. My mom and Bo's mom became friends. She'd come over and visit my mom sometimes, and Bo would come with her, and he'd be polite to me. He'd he'd talk to me. He'd ask me questions, genuinely curious about my interests and opinions. My life completely changed one day at lunch. I was sitting all alone at my lunch table, per usual. That's when Bo got up from the cool kids table and sat down next to me. Within seconds, all of the girls got up and joined us, and then the guys did too. Just like that, the entire cool kids table had come to me. 
Since then, instead of people calling me nerd or geek, they called me Ricky. Rather than knock the books from my hands and push me around, they'd pat me on the back and ask how I was doing. I was one of them now. I was a cool kid. And then there were the parties. Since I had become part of the in-crowd, I was invited to all the bitchin' parties. And I went to all of them. I'd play games, dance, I'd even drink a beer once in a while. The best part of it was the girls started flirting with me. Every girl wanted to be Bo's girlfriend, but if they couldn't have him, his buddy, who happened to be his neighbor, was a good consolation prize, and believe me, when it comes to girls, there's nothing wrong with being a consolation prize. Everything was going just swimmingly. I was popular, I was one of the cool kids, I was on the verge of having a girlfriend, but then suddenly, my world got rocked. Bo went to a party without me. It was a very select party. Only the most popular, coolest kids were there. But I wasn't invited. I didn't understand. I had been invited to all the other parties as of late. Why wasn't I invited to this one? I asked Bo as to why I didn't get to go to that party, and he said, Don't worry about it. There's a good one next week you can go to. He was right, there was a huge party the following week, and I was invited, and everyone treated me great, but the following week there was another one of those small, secretive parties just for the cool kids, and nobody told me about it. And that's the way it went. One week there'd be a big high school bash, and I was allowed to attend that, but the following week there'd be a small, secret gathering of cool kids, and I wasn't welcomed. I wasn't even told. I started spying on that small group of kids, which I dubbed the coolest of the cool. I'd get close to them and listen in on their conversations. I tried to learn as much as I could about their mysterious, clandestine meetings, and it didn't take me long to gather up some solid intel. Every other week, the coolest of the cool met at Susan Jensen's house. She lived in a mini-mansion at the end of Clifton Street. Her parents took trips every other weekend, so it was the perfect location for these mysterious gatherings. And here was the kicker. Nobody was allowed to enter unless they had a password, and the password changed with every meeting. It was so secretive and enigmatic, I just had to know what was going on there and why I wasn't getting invited. I was one of the cool kids now. I should be there too. One day, while I spied on two of the guys in the locker room, I found out the truth. One of them inquired as to why I wasn't being invited, and my heart dropped when I heard the answer. Bo doesn't want him there. It was Bo. Bo was the reason I wasn't being invited. Obviously, he was threatened by my upward trend in status and wanted to make sure I didn't surpass his popularity. Bo was keeping me out. I was seething with anger, but I kept my rage concealed. I didn't want any of the others to know that I was on to them. I had to stay close. I had to learn more. I had to show Bo that I didn't need him anymore. I had to show him that I could stand on my own. It was the Friday before the next secret meeting of the coolest of the cool. 
I hid next to Bo's locker, and just before school let out, one of the others from the coolest gang approached him. Hey Bo, tomorrow night is the night. I have the password. Unfortunately, that was all I heard as he whispered that crucial information into Bo's ear. I watched on disappointedly as Bo wrote the password on the palm of his hand. I wasn't going to let that unfortunate lack of knowledge stop me, so I followed Bo. He exited his house at exactly 9.45 p.m. He was dressed in black and drove to Susan Jensen's house. He parked down the street and began walking behind the shield of the tall shrubbery that lined the driveway. It was the perfect place for me to confront him. I know. Bo startled as he spun around to see who spoke the words, and I could see the surprise on his face as he realized it was me. Ricky? I know everything, Bo. I know it's you that's keeping me from being part of the coolest of the cool. You're threatened by me. Ricky, you don't know what you're talking about. Are you denying it? He became animated as he barked at me. No, no, I don't deny it. These gatherings aren't for you. You don't understand, Ricky. You don't understand the pressure of being popular, the constant grind to stay at the top. You don't understand, Ricky. You don't understand. I stepped closer so that we could be face to face. No, I don't. But I will. And with that, I sank my knife deep into Bo's gut. His eyes widened with shock. He grabbed onto my shoulder to keep his balance, but ultimately it did him no good as I drove the blade into his abdomen again and again until he slowly sank to the plush manicured lawn and stared up at the starry sky with no life left in his eyes. I bent down and looked at the password he had scribbled onto his hand. Fidelio. I marched with purpose to the house and pounded on the door. Susan Jensen looked surprised when she opened the door and found me standing there. Ricky, I wasn't expecting you, but I'm sorry. Nobody can enter unless they know the password. I smirked as I spoke with confidence. Fidelio. She grinned and nodded. I recognized a spark of admiration in her eye as she held the door open and allowed me to enter. I was led to the library. It was a vast, open room with a few comfortable chairs and a mind-boggling amount of books, both modern and vintage. But it wasn't the room's decor that I was focused on. It was the coolest of the cool, all dressed in black and standing in a large circle. Susan motioned for me to join the circle and announced me by saying, Look who I found. Everybody was not only shocked to see me there, but they were happy. They were genuinely glad to see me. Bo is the only one that is missing. One of the guys spoke up. I guess he chickened out, but we don't need him. Ricky's brave enough to take his place, aren't you, Ricky? I nodded and spoke with arrogance. You're damn right. They laughed, cheered, and applauded my response. I was the coolest guy in school now. Bo had been supplanted. 
Susan handed me and everyone else in the circle an empty bourbon glass. She then walked around the circle and filled our glasses from a bottle that had no label. She joined the circle and held up her glass as she spoke. The time has come. Drink. Everyone raised the glasses to their lips. They were alarmed when I held up a hand and stopped them. Hold on. As the new leader of the cool kids, I felt it my place to make a toast, so I raised my glass high into the air. To the coolest of the cool. I then chugged down the unknown liquid. Several of the group nodded and grinned. Some seemed nervous. I even heard one guy whisper, Boy, Ricky's got some balls on him. Then, all at once, the rest of the members of the secret club drank from their glasses. Thirty seconds later, when the coolest of the cool began grasping at their throats and dropping to the floor dead, I realized what this secret party that Bo tried to save me from actually was... a suicide party. I have some exciting news. You can now get Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories Podcast merchandise. T-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies, hats, mugs, and much more. Choose from two different Maniac on the Loose Scary Stories Podcast logos or get merchandise with one of my book covers on it. Visit maniacontheloose.com slash store. That's maniacontheloose.com slash store. The Scenic Route My parents live in northern Tennessee, which is approximately two hours from me. Every other week, I take a little road trip over the weekend and visit them. If I take the expressway, I'm there right at the two-hour mark, but if I opt to take the scenic route, it's normally a a two-and-a-half to three-hour trip. I normally take the scenic route. There's a cluster of different back roads that will get me to my destination. Depending on which way I go, I might pass by a life-sized pink elephant, the world's largest soccer ball, a motel of wigwams, various birthplaces of famous people, and countless small towns that each holds their own unique charm about them. The route I was taking on this day didn't take me by any roadside attractions. It was the true country back road route that passed through forests and farmland. With the exception of the occasional tobacco barn or farmhouse, there was nothing much to observe in the way of structures just land as far as the eye could see. I was in the process of driving down a skinny road that was just a step above a dirt path when I came across another sign of life. It was a plain white van pulled over on the side of the road. The hood was up and I could see a burly man fidgeting around under it. I decided to get out and give the man a hand. Most wouldn't expect that the mechanical cavalry had arrived when they see a skinny 5'3 tomboy arrive on the scene, but that's exactly what they were getting. 
I come from a long line of mechanics. My great-grandfather was a mechanic. My grandfather was a mechanic. My father was a mechanic. My three brothers are all mechanics, and it's a passion of mine as well. So I'm an ace when it comes to vehicles of any kind. What seems to be the problem? The man stepped away from the shield of the hood. He was a mean-looking fella in his thirties. His body was broad. His hands were the size of catcher's mitts. He was bald and had a scar running down one side of his face. There was something odd about his demeanor. He seemed uneasy. My gut told me that he was hiding something. He snarled as he spoke with a gruff, cavernous voice. It just died. Want me to take a look at it? He gawked at me for a few seconds. You? I let out a laugh as I walked past him. Have you ever heard the old saying that looks can be deceiving? Yeah, that describes me to a T, mister. It took me about ten seconds to figure out what the problem was. You don't know a whole lot about engines, do you? He shook his head. Your car battery is corroded all to hell. It's built up so bad it's keeping the current from flowing. He stepped forward to gaze at the corrosion I pointed out. Can you fix it? I smiled, in a jiffy. As I walked back to my truck to get my cable cleaners, I noticed that the van's back windows were covered up with cardboard. That was definitely a red flag. I noticed that one of the cardboard portions was hanging loose. I could see the masking tape that was holding it in place about to give way. I grabbed my cable cleaners from my truck and went to work on cleaning up the corrosion from his battery connectors. I grabbed my cable cleaners from my truck and went to work on cleaning up the corrosion from his battery connectors. As I worked, I made a little small talk with the intimidating man. So, what are you doing out here in the middle of nowhere? Where are you headed? Guthrie. I lifted my head and raised an eyebrow as I spoke. Guthrie? I heard that town is full of crazies. Rumor is that back in the day they used to burn people alive. You best be careful. The big man stepped forward and held an offended grimace on his face as he responded. I live in Guthrie. I'm one of those so-called crazy people. Boy, didn't I really put my foot into it. I immediately tried to smooth things over. Sorry, I didn't mean to offend... He interrupted. Have you ever been to Guthrie? I shook my head. I didn't think so. Those are just absurd urban legends. His tone got sharper as he continued. You're just like everyone else. You rush to judgment, not even pausing to consider your own ignorance. I held up a hand. My apologies, mister. Sometimes I talk before I think. I didn't mean anything by it. He stood there brooding and watching me as I finished up the repair as fast as I possibly could. Once complete, I pointed to the cab of the van. Give it a try. The menacing man marched to his van, got in, and it started right up. I shut the hood and wiped my hands off of my jeans as I approached him. This will get you to Guthrie, but you need a new battery. That one looks like a tale as old as time. He stared at me coldly, obviously still resentful about my inopportune comment. As I walked away, I stopped and turned when I heard him yell out, Hey! He was staring at me coldly with fierce eyes, but 
Maybe his looks were as deceiving as mine because he then sincerely told me, Thanks. I nodded and shot him a friendly smile. As I turned and started for my truck, I noticed that the hanging cardboard piece on his van's back window was now merely dangling as it had fallen most of the way down. This allowed me to see clearly into the back of his van. I stopped in my tracks and let out an audible gasp. There was a young girl in her early teens lying in the back. Her wrists and ankles were bound with duct tape and she was gagged. She was moving a little bit, but appeared to be groggy as if sedated. I wish you hadn't have seen that. I turned around to see the large man wringing his hands as he stood staring at me. He was obviously in a bind and I could tell that his instinct was to get rid of the witness, so I quickly offered him an ultimatum. Let the girl come with me and I'll forget I ever saw you. Deal? As expected, he shook his head and declined my offer. I can't do that. She's coming with me. And so are you. The hulk of a man charged me. I whirled away and he stumbled clumsily into the side of the van. This enraged him. I could see the fury in his eyes when he spun around and readied himself for another attack. Before he could launch another offensive, I surprised him by stepping forward and kicking him square in the family jewels. He doubled over enough for me to reach his face, and I took that opportunity to poke him in the eye. Oh yeah, my father wasn't just a mechanic. He was also a martial arts instructor. I knew how to handle myself, but I wasn't stupid. This guy was a giant compared to me. If he were able to get me in his grasp, I'd be done for. I had to get the girl and get out of there while I had a chance. I popped open the back doors and the sunlight cast a spotlight on the contents of the van. The girl had managed to rise up into a sitting position, but was still very weak. A large stone with a natural sunken center was tied to a rope and it was hanging over the girl's neck like some kind of primitive necklace. There were thick iron rods lining the bed of the van and small, bright, red berries were scattered throughout. What was all of this? What was this man planning on doing with this girl? The girl pawed at the heavy stone necklace around her neck. Her voice was frail. Can you help me get this off? I jumped into the van and removed the unusual stone necklace from the girl's neck and began pulling her toward the back of the van. She started mumbling something about moving the iron bars. As I reached for one of the thick iron bars, I heard the man's voice bellow. Don't do it! As I started pushing the heavy cold iron bars to the side, I gazed over to see the mammoth of a man getting to his knees and rubbing his injured eye. Don't do it! Don't move that iron! She can't pass over the iron. I shoved the iron bars out of the way and pulled the girl from the truck, much to the chagrin of the big man. No, if she's free from the hagstone and the rowan berries, she'll regain her strength. Just as those words left the big man's mouth, the young girl kicked me squarely in the chest, sending me flying ten feet through the air before crashing to the earth. As I lifted my head from the ground, I witnessed an unbelievable spectacle before me. The young girl was glowing. 
Her skin had taken on a subtle green appearance and her arms were raised toward the sky. The big man was suspended in midair like a helium balloon. He was screaming helplessly. I cried out to the young girl that I just saved. What are you doing? She turned her scowling face my way and spoke in a shriek. I'll deal with you in a moment, my pretty. But, but I, I saved you. <laughs> that was your mistake. As she turned her attention back to the big man floating in the air, I knew I had to do something, so I rushed the glowing green girl. I didn't make it anywhere near her before I felt an invisible grip latch around my throat. The big man dropped to the ground and suddenly it was I that was being hoisted up in the air suspended by nothing but a sinister force. I could barely breathe. I gazed down at the evil girl below who seemed to be amused by the whole ordeal. But as I looked at her, I noticed the big man sneaking up behind her with that monolithic necklace in his hands. With the girl being distracted by me, the big man was able to drop the hagstone rope over the girl's neck. I immediately dropped to the ground in a heap. As I lifted myself up, I saw the wicked girl on her hands and knees. The glow around her had vanished. Her skin was now pale, and she was in a frail state once again. I watched on as the big man tossed the weakened girl back into the van amidst the rowan berries and set the cold iron bars back in place. He shut the van doors and walked to me. He held out his hand and helped me to my feet. He allowed me a moment to brush off my hands and catch my breath before he spoke. The town folk of Guthrie don't burn people. We burn wicked witches. We hope you enjoyed the show. We're dying for you to come back for more. <laughs> Visit ManiacOnTheLoose.com Sign up for our newsletter and I'll give you some free stuff. We'll see you soon. Very soon. Here's a super fun way to support the show. Go to ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash store and buy some Maniac on the Loose merchandise. Let the world know you're a listener. T-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies, hats, mugs, there's a bunch of items to choose from. And you have a multitude of design choices, including all of my book covers. Go take a look. It's super cool. Go on. Do it. Right now. Go. ManiacOnTheLoose.com slash store.